All right, well, uh, before I begin, I'm going to take about 10 seconds here and just do a refresher from last week. If you guys remember last week um, and the week before that, we had a two-part sermon talking about how the gospel made it to the Gentiles. And I think since we're all Gentiles in here, we're all pretty happy about that, uh, that the gospel made it there. And then on Wednesday, we talked about Acts 11, 1 through 18. We talked about some other stuff, but we mentioned this at the end. And it's great because at the very end of this, this passage, Peter comes back from Caesarea. He goes all the way back to Jerusalem with the six guys that went with him. And we get them all back in Jerusalem. They start telling them about what happened in Caesarea, that the gospel came to the Gentiles and the Spirit was given. And they tell the story and they've got witnesses and they end by saying this. Uh, then, right, then the Gentiles also, then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance. There's just no arguing it, basically. We can't argue this. To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. And we're all thankful for that. But now, I'm going to hop back, but before I do, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you again for your word. And I just ask this morning that you would be with us as we're looking at your word. I ask that you would give me wisdom as I speak. Pray that what is presented today will be your truth and your truth alone. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to hop back in Acts, but before I do, I, uh, something has presented itself this morning that, that just ties in so well with what I'm getting ready to talk about. Let me ask you, what, what's, what are some things that are necessary for a church to be influential? Is it the Mevo working correctly? That's the little camera. Is that, is that absolutely essential? No. No, it, the videos, the videos playing the sound right off the bat, is that absolutely important for, the, for a church to be a good church? Charity's thinking about it. <laughs> it. It's frustrating, isn't it, when those little things happen? But I'm going to tell you right now, those are not essential things. You can take away all of this stuff, get rid of the building. We could be out in the middle of a field and be the most influential church in Danville. I don't know if you know this or not, but Danville... It needs help, doesn't it? It needs Jesus. My wife has a, in her office, she's got this sign up on the wall. And it just says, y'all need Jesus. It's funny to have it up there. It's funny to say it. But I'm going to be honest with you. This city, it doesn't need a new program. It doesn't need a new social engineered this or that. I mean, ultimately, those, some of these things can help. Ministries can help. All these things can help. But at the very end of it, what this city needs is Jesus. And you know what organization God designed to bring Jesus to people? You know, God actually planned an organization. He, there, there, there's actually an organization, that a group of people that he organized to be his human representatives. You know what it was? The church. You're it. You're the ones that God has decided to be his representatives on this earth to this city. This is where you're at. This is where this church is. So we're going we're gonna to hop back and Acts mentally back to Stephen for a moment. You guys remember Stephen? What happened to Stephen? What was the last thing that happened to Stephen? Yes, he was stoned to death. And who sat, and I always picture him with his arms crossed. Who sat with his arms crossed, people laying coats at his feet? Saul, right? Who eventually, we eventually know as Paul, the apostle. So you've got Saul who's approving of that. But then Saul... After this persecution, the persecution kind of scatters. Do you remember that part of the story in Acts? 
It makes it up to Samaria. Philip is one of the people that gets up there. Not this Philip. Another Philip. <laughs> makes it up there. And he's preaching the gospel to the Samaritans and the gospels. He makes it to this Ethiopian eunuch. He's preaching the gospel to him. He's going all over the place. The, the gospel, it's almost, I always picture that part of Acts. I always picture it like this flame that has started to kindle the gospel. And always in my head, I always picture Satan trying to stomp it out. But what happens when he tries to stomp it out? All these little sparks shoot out. And that's exactly what happens in Acts. And the gospel just spreads like a wildfire. <laughs> well, what we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 11 ties back to what happened with Stephen. And in fact, it starts off this way. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, let me throw a map up here for you. Give you some reference. I love the maps when I'm studying Acts. Here's Jerusalem. Now, see this little circle right here? That's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when Jesus was ministering, it was all in this area and down in this area, okay? So this is where we're at. Caesarea, we talked about last week, was right over here, about just a little bit off where that S is. I can't hold my hand steady enough to get right on. Okay, so it's right about there, Caesarea. So, so we're talking about when it's really traveled. But did you hear where it traveled in this passage? The persecution over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. Now, at first they were speaking the word, no one but Jews. Look where it's headed. Now, it's, it's about 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. It also mentions Cyprus, so it's gone by boat now. Uh, Cyrene isn't even on my map. It's over here. The gospel is spreading. Look at this passage again. Other than Stephen being the cause, do you see any other names mentioned here in the spreading of this gospel? closest we get is that there were some, some guys, basically. No names. No names mentioned. Spreading the gospel. Now, the city of Antioch, let me tell you a few things about it. Like I said, 300 miles from Jerusalem. Its nickname was called the Queen of the East. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Okay, huge city. Uh, in fact, about this time, they were they were running at about a half a million people, 500,000 people. Now, that's huge for this time period. That's huge for us. It was huge for this time period. This, this city was uh, right in the middle of a crossroads. There were roads headed north and south and east and west. In fact, you can see they weren't too far, uh, about 30 miles from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a road headed right over this way. So a lot of trade was going through Antioch to the east and the west and the north and the south. This place was peopled by Greeks and Romans and Syrians and Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians all populated the city. Uh, it was called, uh, at, that time, at that time period, it was referred to as all the world in one city. It's people from all over the place. John Stott said of this city, he said, no more appropriate place could be imagined, either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. And that's exactly what this city becomes. Two places later in the book of Acts, Antioch is mentioned as the base church when Paul the Apostle heads out on his missionary journeys. 
And I think John Stott's onto something. If you were looking at a map and you said, what would be the perfect city to base a church that's going to reach out to all kinds of people? Antioch would have been the perfect place. And that's precisely what we're reading about right now. We're talking about Antioch. And we're going to hear about um, Paul the Apostle eventually takes all of his missionary journeys up through here. We've got Jerusalem down this way. But Antioch becomes this base of operations for Paul the Apostle. His missionary journeys with Barnabas and later on with Silas. Notice as well, if I go back to this passage again, I love this. At first they were going just to the Jews. Now they would not have heard in Antioch about what happened with Peter in Caesarea. That the gospel was now, they wouldn't have heard about this council in Jerusalem saying, hey, the gospel has now been made available to the Gentiles. They wouldn't have heard this. But you have these people that are hearing the news, and instead of just going to the Jews, they just decide, we're just telling everybody. Isn't that what you do with good news? You're, you're not thinking, and these guys, whoever these guys are, we don't, we, we don't know. We may know when we get up to heaven, we'll find out who these guys were. But whoever these guys were, they, they, don't, not, they don't care who is supposed to get. They just heard the good news, and they're just going around going, did you hear that this Jesus, this is Jesus from, from the Jews, you know, he was down there. But here's the thing, forget that. He's the, their Messiah, but here's the thing, he's the Messiah for everybody. When he died, he actually died. On a cross, he was crucified. Roman crucifixion, yeah, he was killed. He was dead in the tomb for three days, and he came back to life. What? Yeah, I mean, he was dead. Are you sure about it? No. There was people, verified, witnessed, testified. In fact, there was a Roman soldier at the foot of the cross that just to make sure he was dead, plunged a spear into his side, up through the ribcage. There's testimony witnesses of this. Well, yeah, but are you sure he really raised it? Yeah. At one point, did you know there was over 500 people saw him at once? After he was, yeah. I heard that one of his disciples that was questioning it, when he showed up to him, he said, his name was, I think, Timothy. And he showed him his hands. He said, Timothy, we want you to put your fingers in the holes. And my hands touch my side. Man. But what was the point of this crucifixion? When he died... He died to take the penalty of all humanity's sin on himself. Even mine, I'm no theologian, but I think yes, because it, I think it worked for me. And so these guys are spreading this news of this Jesus, Lord of all. It's astounding. And it's spreading. People are hearing and they're believing. It goes on to say, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So they hear and they believe and they turn to the Lord. The report of this, it was such a significant outbreak of the gospel, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So news travels down to Jerusalem. Hey, this is going on. The mother church, if you want to think of it that way. Down in Jerusalem. And so who do they send? Barnabas. You guys remember what Barnabas' name, what his name meant? Anybody remember? Son of encouragement. Good, son of encouragement. It, I, I love Barnabas because Barnabas had already showed this propensity to be able to bridge some, some gaps between people. Remember when Saul came down back to Jerusalem? Last time he was there, he was killing Christians. He comes back and what is, 
who, who finally says, I'm, I'm willing to meet with this guy, is Barnabas. And Barnabas is the one that says, I think you're the real deal, Saul. I'm going to take you to the apostles. And the apostles trust Barnabas enough to know, hey, if Barnabas says he's okay, he's okay. And this is Barnabas. So who do they decide to send up to Antioch to check, it, check things out? Barnabas. Son of encouragement. Bridging the gaps. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. I, just, I, I love reading about Barnabas. Not a negative thing at this point. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Think of Barnabas as like quality control here. The Gospels made it up there, but, but he goes up to make sure that they understand what does it mean to believe in this Jesus? What does it mean for your life? What does it mean you ought to do? How does it affect your day-to-day -day existence? So he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Why? Because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So the ministry is breaking out. All sorts of people in this city were the whole world of one city. And the gospel just breaking out with all sorts of people there. He's not a splash of cold water in their faces. He doesn't show up and say, you guys are doing this all wrong. He encourages them, but exhorts them and says, keep at it. He's glad. He's excited. Barnabas also is, is not a, a proud man. There's no New Testament composed at this point. So Barnabas, it says, verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I love this as well. It's almost like Barnabas said, you know who would be perfect here? Saul. He would be great here. I gotta go get him. Now he knew Saul when he'd come back to Jerusalem had escaped because they were trying to their, their people were trying to kill Saul. He'd escaped and it said that he'd gone up to Tarsus. So Saul's been up in Tarsus through all these other events. We, I have no idea what he's been doing up there, but but Barnabas he knows that's where he went. So so Barnabas is with the Antioch church and he goes, I feel like he goes, wait, I'll be right back. It would have taken a while though to make this journey. He goes to Antioch. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met with the church. A whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's cool, isn't it? Now let me tell you some interesting things about this. First of all, notice it doesn't say in Antioch the disciples first called themselves Christians. Does it say that? No. It says this is where they were first called Christians. This is fascinating. This word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Did you guys, who, did anybody know that? Mom, aren't you proud of me? <laughs> only three times in the Holy Testament this, the, the word Christian is used. And all three times, it's never the disciples. In fact, the people, they, they were before, they were calling themselves members of the way. That's what they were calling themselves. Or they're calling themselves the disciples. Not Christians. In fact, all three times that this word is mentioned, it's used in a way that might seem, you might say, derogatory. It, it wasn't a nice term. Now, if you study the word, it, it's, it's kind of confusing what it exactly means. The first part we know, Christ, right? Christ. There's this Christos at the beginning. 
But the end of it, it's, it's tough because this is actually a Greek word that was translated from Greek into Latin, back into English, and then back into Greek, and then back into, I mean, it's, it made it around. So we're looking at a word, when we see Christian, we're looking at a word that's like a compilation of most likely a Latin term. Like if you look at the Greek for Christian, it says Christian. The, the end of that, the I-A-N, most likely means they were people of. So it most likely means they were just saying, you, you guys are of the, the group of the Christ, whoever he is. That's who you are. Some people have said it, it's almost like they were going, it's like a bunch of little Jesuses walking around this city. A bunch of little Christs. That's kind of cool, isn't it? So these people are, are going around, they're living in such a way that, it, now it's not for another hundred years after this that the Christians actually start, they, they adopt this name almost like a badge of honor. But before the New Testament is over, Peter uses this word, he says, if any of you suffers as a Christian, meaning if any of you suffers as being called this derogatory term, let, let, let them know that, hey, God sees. I think that's amazing. That was 1 Peter 4.16, by the way. If, anybody went, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. That's pretty profound, isn't it? The, first, the, the term that we use as a badge of honor started off as a, a city making fun of the new believers. Realizing these aren't just the Jews. This is getting into everything else. But this is a bunch of little Jesuses walking around derogatory term. Now these days, uh, prophets came down from Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sorry, I was going to highlight that one. Now these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, we don't know anything else about Agabus except for this, one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And we don't know anything else about Agabus, but here's the thing that's important. Luke is mentioning this so that Theophilus, who he's writing to, has a good time frame. Theophilus would have known, I remember when that famine happened. That was a couple years ago. Or that was 10 years ago. I remember when that happened. And so he's throwing this in to show there's a, there's a time frame. So the purpose is not to think about the prophet or the prophecy, but we're really going to focus on what happens next. So this young church, at the most a year old, at the most the Christians, had been around for about a year. What do these Christians decide to do when they hear that another area down in Judea is going to be struggling, is going to go through a hard time? It says, so the disciples determined, right, they're calling themselves disciples still, disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So after this year that this church has been around, fledgling church, young church, not a person in there that's been a Christian more than a year. But they've got something. Oh, our brothers are suffering. They're going to be suffering. Let's start collecting some money to send relief down to them. They didn't go, well, they've been around longer than us. We're the new Christians. No, what do they do? We've got we to do something. We've got to help. Now, Antioch, like I mentioned before, I think the church in Antioch is a great example of what it means to be an influential, or I'm going to call it a missional church, or a church that's on mission. 
If a church is on mission, it's a church that's doing what it's supposed to do. We could be on mission and have our sound system mess up. We could have the best sound system in the world. Every video play perfectly. All the microphones sound great. Music, profound. Every note, perfect. Everybody, John comes in at the right time, every song. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. <laughs> that was mean. I apologize. <laughs> it's sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm down here singing the wrong words half the time. We can have all that together and be completely off mission. So I want to go back and examine some of these passages and think about what we see in this church in Antioch because this church changed, this is the church, not the church in Jerusalem. This is the church that becomes a base of missions throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. This young, year-old church. So let's pick apart a few things here. I'm going to try to summarize them with some little phrases here. I didn't do them very pastorally. They don't all start with the same letter. Uh, the first one is this. What you see here is grassroots evangelism. Grassroots, I think we hear that term a lot nowadays, but grassroots just simply means it, it's not organized necessarily. It's just, just with the people. Did you see that with this church in Antioch? No, 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 yeses, no. Come on, did you not see that with this church? Was, was, it, was it Peter that was starting off with the spread of the gospel in Antioch? No. Was it Paul that started it? No. Barnabas, he didn't show up till later. Who started this, this, this spreading of the gospel in the city of Antioch? In fact, who took the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch? Do we even know their names? No. Anonymous. Just evangelism, I imagine, with tradesmen, shepherds, carpenters, working together. You wouldn't believe what I heard in the market the other day. Antioch had this huge market where all these people would come together in the central market. I can just imagine, I was standing next to this guy and he was talking about, I think it was Jesus down in uh, you know, Judea or Galilee, I think it was. And he starts telling the story. That's amazing. Witnesses. Genuine, just witnesses to the truth. This, is, this thing that happened is true. They verified it. And I'm telling you about it. And I'm telling you about it. And I'm telling you about it. Grass roots. The ordinary things of life. Uh, for you, I know, if you know the truth, don't you share the truth? Isn't that exact? I, I was thinking about this this morning and I thought, it reminds me of disaster movies. Right? My wife and I, we love disaster movies. And so the disaster movies come, right? And so you find out, oh no, the world's going to end, or this huge tsunami is going to go, or the you know the, everything's going to fall apart, earthquake. And people, it doesn't matter who they are, when they figure out like this bad thing is happening, the good ones, what do they do? They start to try to tell people. This is what evangelism is all about: is telling people about this. Frankly, a disaster that's coming. Not just the good news, but also the bad news. God is judge of all the earth. The very first time I ever preached, <coughs> it was not the best sermon in the world. But I preached on Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33 talks about uh, this prophet Ezekiel. God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, I, I'm going to set you up as a watchman. So you picture a, a city, walled city. Watchman would go up on the tower and, and look out. 
And this is what he writes. I don't have this up here on the slides for you. He writes, he says, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, says, Speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword, I being God, if I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people. So, pause. So, so, you, so you're saying, hey, if, if you know that the sword is coming, and you set a watchman up on the wall, and this watchman up on the wall, if he sees the sword, so he sees off in the distance, maybe a, a cloud of dirt, right? That He knows that the army is coming. So he has this trumpet, and he blows the trumpet and warns the people. That's, what the, that's the picture that's being set up here. So if he sees the sword coming upon the land, blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. In other words, so he goes, he gets the trumpet, he blows the trumpet, this guy down in the city, like he hears the trumpet, and he's like, eh. God says, well, if he hears the trumpet but does not take warning, his blood's on his own head. I always feel like it should be his own dumb head, but his own head. He heard the trumpet. He could have done something to prepare. He didn't do it. But then God goes on with Ezekiel, and he says this. He heard the sound of the trumpet, did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet. So picture this one now. Up on the wall sees the sword coming. He's got the trumpet in hand. He knows these people can't see the sword coming. He knows it's his job to let them know it's coming. It says if he sees it and he does not blow the trumpet. Listen to what God says next. That the watchman sees the sword coming, does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned. And the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity so it's not like those people were innocent. But listen to what it says. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. It's like a way of saying, I'm holding that watchman responsible for what happened here. Now I can remember the first time I read that I thought to myself, I don't know what it means to have God require their blood at my hands, but it can't be good. Some of you are like this watchman. You come to church, you hear, God is coming back. All the world will stand before him at the judgment seat. All those that, while they were here, put their faith in him, will enter into life. All those who not, have not will enter into what Jesus, loving Jesus says, is eternal damnation. Eternal. That's his words, not mine. Some of you hear it. And you see it, you think about it, and you meet people. And an opportunity comes up, and you say nothing. If we want to be an influential church, it's got to start with all of you. It doesn't start with me. It's grassroots evangelism. All of us out in the world telling people about Jesus. In your own way, in your own style, but telling them the truth. God's coming back. You have a responsibility, but it's also a privilege. Number two, 
unbiased evangelism. You see this in this church in Antioch. One of the biggest reasons why it was such an influential church, not just to its own city, but throughout the entire rest of the Roman Empire, is because they were not biased. These people who were sharing, they weren't thinking about, is this the right person to share to? Should I be sharing to them? Do I really want them to be part of my church that we just started? Were they doing that? No. It says these people were from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're just sharing it to everybody. Hey, you. You got ears. Let me tell you something. Hey, you. You got ears. Let me tell you something. They're just sharing it. They haven't heard the report from Jerusalem. They haven't gotten the okay that it's okay to share the gospel to the Gentiles. They're already doing it. They didn't stop to check. Who's this good news for? They just assume. This has got to be for everybody. So they take it to everyone. Sadly, this isn't always true. Tony Meredith says this. He says, many, though often well-intentioned, care more about protecting their own way of life than they do about sharing the gospel with pagans who may bring all kinds of new challenges into the Christian community should they accept the Lord. They might, for example, want to introduce new styles of music or new ways of doing things. But to hide safely in a bomb shelter and let those outside the family fend for themselves mentality will never result in effective evangelism. We can't be salt and light if we are never involved with those who live in, um, those who live in and know only a corrupt and dark world. There's people that, they, I don't know if you know this, there's some people in Danville, they don't go to church. Did you know that? They don't step foot in here. So, in fact, if you invite them, they probably won't come. There's some people like, now there's some, we get surprised sometimes, the ones that we don't think, and they do come, and we're so excited about it, and the building shakes a little bit, but it's fine, it's still here. There's some that would not step foot. And the only little Jesus that they will ever meet might just be you. Because their circles of friends aren't involved with Christ. And somehow God has placed you right in their path. Maybe it's where you work. Maybe they're your neighbor. They didn't pick to be your neighbor, but there you are. The Antioch Christians didn't withdraw contact from people who did not yet understand the gospel. They shone in the midst of them. It is no surprise that this was the congregation God used to launch the Gentile mission. To be salt and light in your world, in your little corner of the world. That's what Jesus describes it as. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You ought to be that in every little nook and cranny that your life goes into. The next one I have here, and you guys are going to help me with this next one. Discipleship. I wanted to put down definitive discipleship. That was my first thought. Should I put down definitive discipleship? And I put this down because, in fact, uh, it was Timothy Keller who described it, and I mentioned this a moment ago. Barnabas came up almost as like quality control to make sure, okay? So there, there's some discipleship. So even after their first believing, Barnabas shows up in a loving way. And so then I thought about putting it grace-filled discipleship because he shows up so loving. And he's, he's, he's there to define what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and he's also there to, he does it in such a loving way, so the definitive discipleship, grace-filled discipleship, I'm not sure. 
He wants to teach them in a way that's encouraging. But then he goes to get Paul, Saul, still at this time, and they're there for a year. So then I thought about putting long-term discipleship. They're in it for the long haul, to carry them through. You can pick whichever one you want to put down. Put them all down if you want. But there's discipleship happening. It's definitive. It's not willy-nilly. It's grace-filled. It's there for the long haul. Finally, if we look at that Agabus prophecy, we see this from this church. This young church that knows so little. Just a year's worth of teaching. None of them have earned their theological degrees. None of them have been trained in seminary at this point. Barnabas and Saul are doing the best they can to teach and train. But in the middle of all of this, they capture something because Agabus shows up and says, tragedy is coming in Judea. They learned something from Jesus, didn't they? Brotherly love. They learned love. And so whichever, whatever means that they had themselves, that's what the scripture said, whatever means that they had, they're like, we've got to help our brothers and sisters down in Judea. Paul says later at another point um, to the Galatian church, he says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I think that Paul saw this firsthand. This is way before he wrote this. I think Paul saw this firsthand at the church of Antioch. If you have opportunity, they did. Show love, especially to those. It's not, it's not at the neglect of others, but Christians ought to be looking out for other Christians, saying, what can we do to meet each other's needs? Brotherly love. That's why over and over again in Scripture you see one another, one another, one another, love one another, care for one another, over and over and over again. Brotherly love. I'm going to end today with another Tony Meredith quote. He says this, The church in Antioch, not, not the mother church in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch changed the world. You could easily link the fact that the Gospels made it across the ocean to this place here. You could follow it back and trace it back. It all started right here in Antioch, this worldwide missional effort. I started off today by saying that Danville needs Jesus. They do. When we hear about all the, the, the crime, tragedy, it's easy for us as Christians to start thinking, you know, I, I, I've seen it. The, 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 we even use phrases like, the, the people that are doing this. I'll tell you, the people that are doing this are no different to you. They need Jesus. And you might be one of the people that just runs into one of their paths. And you're going to have a decision to make. Are you going to stick to sharing the gospel to just the people that you feel are safe? Or are you going to be like these guys from Cyrene and Cyrus, Phoenicia, that just start sharing the gospel to everybody they come across? Are you going to be of the sort that hunkers down in the bunker? We've got to wait this damn little business out. This world is going somewhere. <laughs> or are we going to get out there? It's risky. 
You might, you might get hurt in the process. I can almost guarantee you'll get burned. But it's worth it in the end. Because when we stand before the Father, don't you all want to hear the words? Well done. Good and faithful servant. And as much as you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I close today knowing that all of us in this room need growth in this area to be more like this church in Antioch. I marvel at their fearlessness to, to just spread the gospel, to share the gospel. Surely they had heard about what happened in Jerusalem to those Christians, but yet they just did it anyway. Share the gospel. God, I pray that you'd help us to grow in this area. I pray that you'd be with each and every one that's in this room individually. Lord, I think of all the individuals in this room, no one left out. God, I ask that you would help them in whatever little nook or cranny of work, the, their job, their, their neighbors, their neighborhood. I pray that whatever they would do, God, I pray that they would shine like a light of righteousness. Filled with grace. Lord, they are the salt of the earth. Lord, this city needs to be salted. And we're it. Lord, I pray that wherever they're at, each and every person in this room, that you would give them the strength and the courage, the endurance, the, Lord, the purpose to shed your light on all that they encounter. God, I pray now, Lord, as Barnabas came to that church in Antioch and encouraged them, exhorted them to be faithful, Lord, I end on that note, Lord, asking that you would help all in this room to simply be faithful. Be faithful to the words that they hear from the Bible. Faithful to, to, to obey those truths. Faithful to love their neighbors. Faithful to honor you as their Lord. Lord, help them just begin today, right now, by deciding to be faithful. I ask this in the name of Jesus, that you will hear this prayer and honor it, Lord, by granting faithfulness to all in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.